0: Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel. Today, I am pulling the birthday card, and I'm not doing an interview. So instead, it's just going to be me and Chris rapping about the news. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to tell you all about an exciting development at Knock. Instead of going to NOC-LA.com, you can now just go to knock.la to get all of the great content. And if you're liking what we're doing here, you're liking what we're doing at Knock, or you want to see that grow, maybe you hate it and you want to see us get better at it. Throw us a dollar, throw us five dollars, give us some love over on Patreon, on and watch how, what we can do with that. So, without further ado, how you doing, Chris? Oh yeah, this is gonna be fun. I'm doing pretty well. It's
1: uh, the weather's finally cooling off a little bit in the evenings. It's actually quite enjoyable now.
0: Yeah, it. it I'm, I'm kind of liking it. The weird marine layer is strange in the morning. I'm just kind of like muggy, and uh, it seems like uh, the fires are kind of being tamped down. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful for that. Uh, at the same time, though, a massive early season hurricane is about to slam into Hawaii. So like, you know, don't get super comfortable. Climate change still totally coming to kill us all.
1: Yeah, I mean, it did smell like somebody had had a campfire going in my parking garage last week, which was weird. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's uh, this is the this is the nice time of weather here in L.A. At least in downtown where I'm at.
0: Yeah, this is the time of year I don't mind paying California prices. This is what I'm paying for. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so what else has been going on around the state?
1: Uh, well, let's uh, let's start in with uh, SB ten. So originally, it was intended to replace cash bail and end pretrial detention, but it has been gutted by amendments, and it will only be increasing pretrial detention in the influence of bias and prejudice. Uh, nearly every single organization that had originally been backing the bill in the first place has pulled their support at this point. This includes the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, the California Public Defenders Association, Ben the Arc, Youth Justice Coalition, LA CAN, and many others. Uh, According to the LA Times, Quote, under the latest version of the bill, only people charged with certain low-level nonviolent misdemeanors, a list of charges that can be further narrowed by county, would be eligible for automatic release within 12 hours of being booked into jail. All others arrested would have to undergo risk analysis, a system that would sort defendants based on criminal history and other criteria into low, medium, or high-risk categories. Courts would be required to release low-level defendants without assigning bail, pending a hearing. Pre-trial services offices would decide whether to hold or release medium-risk offenders.
0: And this kind of ties into something we've talked about a bunch, is specifically the the encroachment of data into policing and prosecution. Uh, Ace had that tweet where he talked about his juvenile client who got classified as a gang member, even though he's never run with a gang. So these same kind of biases are going to just be built into the system under SB10.
1: Absolutely. So Pete White from L.A. Can actually released a video this week where he and uh, another p- member of L.A. Can we're saying, quote, California has long needed meaningful bail reform. Unfortunately, long lawmakers are considering a bill that will set back true reform decades. SB 10 should really be called Set Back 10 because it would give judges the power to lock people up who haven't even been convicted of a crime without the possibility of release. Among these folks would be undocumented immigrants who would be exposed to detention by ICE and deported. This bill is a backroom deal with no real community input, and it's really a power grab by judges and law enforcement. In an opinion piece that was published in the San Francisco Chronicle on August 14th, Jeff Adachi stated that, quote, if enacted, the bill would trample on our constitutional rights, set criminal justice reform efforts back decades, and destroy countless lives by unnecessarily incarcerating thousands upon thousands of people it would also increase crime and cost the public untold hundreds of millions of dollars
0: and so now unfortunately uh, it's out of the legislature's hands and it's onto Governor Brown's desk it it the originally amended SB 10 passed last Thursday it passed the assembly on Monday after another round of heavy amendments went to the state Senate on Tuesday and passed and now is sitting on government Governor Brown's desk to be signed so that's sort of our last gasp is to pressure Governor Brown into V vetoing this bill because if he doesn't sign it, it becomes law. And if he does sign it, it becomes law even more quickly. On the, uh, on the same subject of mass incarceration, as you're probably aware, August 21st marked the start of a nationwide prison strike. Uh, this is taking place across at least 17 states. Uh, it was started by a situation at Lee Lee Correctional Facility in South Carolina where the guards were literally setting up fights between inmates to sort of settle rivalries and basically not do their jobs. There was an insane riot that went down where the guards basically let the prisoners run crazy all over the, the facility. They did not step in to de-escalate or to stop any violence. Uh seven people may have died. So coming out of yeah, coming out of that, uh prisoners have decided to strike across the nation to no longer work under slave labor conditions, to go on hunger strikes, to do other forms of protest, and are looking for support from the outside. So last night I was down in downtown LA at Men's Central for a noise demonstration put on by the IWW. And here's some sounds for that. So there were a couple of hundred people uh, that showed up, did a lot of solidarity chanting. Uh, we didn't have a real chance to interact with anyone who's incarcerated at Metropolitan Detention Center, where Occupy ICE LA is encamped. We can often communicate with the prisoners at night. Uh, last night there were some police and some sheriffs keeping tabs on us. Uh, obviously, it's a lot harder to get close to Men's Central. It's a very lockdown facility. Uh, but all in all, it was a pretty you know rowdy, noisy night. Uh, not too much pushback from the police, uh, and people did some like good solidarity. And it's definitely getting a lot of media pushback. The prison strike was a trending topic on Twitter, which the last time there was an Asian-wide prison strike, that was two years ago in 2016, didn't get nearly the pickup. Uh, NPR did some coverage of it today, which they're catching some blowback for. But no matter if you think that the mainstream press isn't being radical enough, the fact that they're covering this is a major, major win.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So uh, back to to more California-specific politics, Uh, the Ridley Thomases, Uh, continue to be incredibly corrupt
1: yeah so Sebastian Ridley Thomas is uh, being exposed for having been uh, under investigation for at least two counts of sexual harassment Uh, in a quote from the LA Times late that month the assembly rules committee informed him that an investigation into a complaint was underway according to correspondence that was reviewed by the Times Two sources familiar with the investigation said that the complaint was about alleged, unwanted physical contact of a sexual nature, but did not disclose details of the allegation. A second sexual harassment complaint uh, by a different person was filed around the same time, according to a source familiar with the matter. The sources spoke on the condition of anonymity because they are not authorized to discuss the matter publicly. So Sebastian Ridley Thomas is basically this is all in conjunction with his abrupt departure from the state assembly, which came in around Christmas time in 2016, where he was citing an ongoing health concern that was pushing him out of his position of power there in the state assembly. Um, And that all was happening despite the fact that he was actually in the middle of raising funds for a bid for his third full term in the assembly. So. It all didn't really make that much sense at the time, and it was also coming at the, on the heels of the uh, departure of two other members of the state assembly f- following uh, sexual harassment allegations uh, on their part uh, as part of the Me Too campaign.
0: Yeah, and with with Ridley Thomas and also just assembly members in general, we're not going to find out the details of these allegations unless they're substantiated. So we may be in the dark forever depending on what the legislature finds, and so far their track record On uh, Holding people accountable is is mixed to say the least.
1: Yeah, so an interesting thing that came out in the last couple of days here uh, Regarding this situation is that? Carl Henley who is the president of the Los Angeles chapter of the NAACP released a statement um, from the uh, Officially released a statement on behalf of the NAACP chapter of Los Angeles saying that they quote support Ridley Thomas's African-American voter efforts Um, Which is apparently in reference to the african-american voter registration education and participation project which is uh, Known by an acronym a a v r e p, which is quite a mouthful Um, Which is a political action committee that he found that was founded by um, Mark Ridley Thomas in 2002 and is currently listing on their website that Sebastian Ridley Thomas is their chief strategist it's genuinely unclear what it is that Carl Henley was trying to get at with this um, Because he doesn't actually mention in any way how this is tied into the policy research and practice initiative, which is the nonprofit uh, think-tank organization that is headed by Sebastian Ridley Thomas who was the that and that's the organization that was the recipient of that hundred thousand dollar Which was funneled through the USC School of Social Work uh, and and then given to the uh policy, research, and practice initiative.
0: And from what I remember, the the uh, the group that was listed in the LA Times was something like Citizens for a Better Los Angeles or some innocuous group like that. And it also doesn't make a lot of sense as to why the Ridley Thomases felt that they had to launder the money through USC. Henley talks a little bit about USC using its reputation to help push African-American voting efforts, which sounds noble, but I still don't understand why they would go through USC to just give a donation to this um, political action committee when they could just just do that outright if it was a legal donation.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Which which also then I mean that that speaks to the fact that USC did then immediately fire Sebastian Ridley Thomas when these
0: allegations uh, were made known. And and they did say that he did not inform them he was under investigation when they hired him. He oh, never mentioned yeah, it. That's right. Uh, and claims that he didn't know about it. But it it it's it very like sordid tale, and you actually have to wonder how much due diligence USC did before they hired him, because it seems like they didn't do any at all.
1: There are a lot of coincidences in the story. Yeah, a lot of coincidences. Um, but yeah, because the the uh, that money was being funneled through USC, that is why this matter was then referred to the. Uh, the state, the the federal, US attorney, the U.S. attorney's office, in order to prosecute this potentially for money laundering issues.
0: Yeah, and it's you know when U.S.C. throws up flags on a donation that tells you <laughs> something is they'll take money from just about anyone. Uh, they are the largest recipient of DARPA. That's the Defense Advanced Research Projects uh, that the Pentagon uses to develop like super weapons and cyber weapons and all that stuff. U.S.C. gets more of that money than any other university in the world. So you gotta know that like if the money strikes them the wrong way, it's gotta be really dirty
1: (laughs) oh man i am feeling super proud of my alma mater right now
0: yeah i mean so far we've got you know the horrific sb10 we've got corruption at you know multiple levels of a dynasty and now moving on to campaign finance reform this is going to make me feel good right yeah
1: so this is ab84 Um, So Assembly Bill 84 was originally intended to be a campaign finance reform bill that was going to be requiring more frequent filings of uh, party financial reports with the state in an attempt to apparently, quote unquote, increase transparency. One of those great buzzwords that people like to throw around whenever it comes to uh, campaign finances. So according to reporting from the Sacramento Bee, quote, in a typical election year. Political parties are only required to file six financial disclosures and a 24-hour reports on contributions of $1,000 or more in the three months leading up to an election. AB 84 would require political parties to file monthly reports as well. So this bill would also establish new legislative caucus committees that are independent of the county party bodies and would very likely lead to a massive increase in special interest spending. So, Emily Rush, who is the Executive Director of California Public Interest Research Group, told the Sacramento Bee that, quote, the new law essentially allows corporate donors to give $73,000 more to each party. That's a $36,500 donation to Senate Democrats and $36,500 limit to Assembly Democrats, for example, to fund candidates' campaigns per year. Uh, In further quoting from Rush, quote, rules that allow these really large contributions end up reducing the influence of average Californians in the process. Democracy should be for all of us, not the very few. Currently, the way that the uh, system works is that county party committees funnel money up to the state party, which then in turn hands out contributions based on the endorsements of the party uh, candidate of, of candidates. Uh, through the party, which happens during the conventions and in follow up events. Um, but if nobody gets the endorsement, then n- if nobody gets the endorsement, then none of the money is actually going to be spent on that race. The proposed system in AB 84 would actually upend that paradigm and would allow the leaders of both parties in each house to spend as much money on any race that they choose, regardless of who gets in the the endorsement. And it actually would allow the leaders in those houses, in the house and the senate, to spend the money on candidates who were explicitly not endorsed. So they could actually end up having these leaders spending money on on a candidate who is running against the endorsed. Democratic Party candidate or Republican Party candidate in any of these races. It really does throw a potential massively, massively uh, special interest funded wrench into how the entire political system works in the state.
0: That seems like a really easy way to wash a lot of cash and it seems like a really easy way to make sure that people in leadership positions are even more powerful in the legislature. Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't look like that's going to do anything to really fix our campaign finance system here on the state level. Uh, But now I want to look at the broken campaign finance system on the federal level, specifically because it seems like our mayor is really intent on running for president.
1: Yeah, he absolutely does. It's actually uh, this brings to mind the fact that the Los Angeles Times is currently uh, in a lawsuit with the city uh, or has filed a lawsuit against the city in order to find out how much money they're actually spending. On uh, Garcetti's security detail because he's flying around making all these stops as part of a potential. Uh, testing of the waters, as it were, for his potential 2020 presidential ambitions.
0: Yeah, because every time he goes to, like, Iowa or Thailand or some other place (laughs) that is not Los Angeles, uh, he's taken LAPD officers with him as his personal security because apparently Meg is a very high-value target.
1: Yeah, so uh, there's this interview that he gave with the Associated Press last week, um, and oddly there's no actual transcript that's available, just the write-up from the AP. Um, And in that interview, he actually uh, was was asked about um, the what he thinks about ice and he stopped short of calling for the abolition of ice. But he said that its mission uh, needs to be changed. So he's up for some form of reform of ice, but not for full abolition, unlike a lot of the leaders in the Democratic Party are taking at this point. Um, But the uh, Associated Press liked. Uh, pointed out that one of Garcetti's signature accomplishments as mayor, quote unquote, was helping craft a successful plan to bring the 2028 Summer Olympics to Los Angeles after ceding the 2024 Games to rival Paris. Uh, He also predicted that the transportation improvements and construction in advance of the games will change the face of the city, end quote.
0: And this is one of the reasons why he's refusing to call for the abolition of ICE is that he doesn't want to piss off the federal government. In order to hold the Olympics, he will need a lot of federal support. He will need a lot of support from their security apparatus, from their surveillance apparatus. So if he wants that and he wants the federal government to support him, he has to play nice with DHS. Again, just selling our city down the river to uh serve bigger moneyed interests
1: absolutely and they also failed to point out the fact that uh when it comes to the actual bidding process for those 2024 and 2028 games there were literally only two cities left nobody in the world wanted to host these games except for los angeles and paris and paris basically said well if we hold them in 2028 in paris we won't actually be able to do them In the city, because the facilities that we need to host the Olympics will no longer be available at that point in time. And L.A. basically said, well, ours will. And so the IOC said, well, okay, then Paris gets him in 2024. L.A. gets him in 2028. And so theres I don't know what it is that they're trying to say here as far as his signature accomplishment, because basically we were the last man standing at the table and the hot potato landed in our hands. And we're like, "Okay, well, we're running with this now.
0: Well, and also it's an accomplishment that he'll get when he's no longer here. Like he won't be in (laughs) office in the 2028 games. Like hopefully, I don't know, maybe he'll pull a Tom Bradley and like stick around forever but it's also worth noting like there is no official 2028 bid There was a 2024 bid that was submitted and then went through some rigmarole and the the LA City Council basically had eight days to decide on making the 2028 bid, which was just them copying and pasting the 2024 bid and kind of raises a lot of questions about what exactly got supported there. Uh, While the 2024 bid does exist and you can read that bid book, uh, it's for a different year than we actually got. So there's a lot of like balls that have been dropped at a very basic level on this.
1: Absolutely. So uh, Garcetti also told the AP that, according to him, quote-unquote, the development around the 1932 and 1984 games in L.A. were times that we really rebuilt Los Angeles. So uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that he brings it up like that because if you talk to people who are involved in um, actually trying to educate the public in the city about the impact of these games, uh, back in 1984, when we, quote-unquote, really rebuilt Los Angeles, There was actually a massive uh, cleansing of the area of anyone who was deemed to be a quote-unquote undesirable by the city from the area where the games were actually held. There was a massive increase in policing. Lots and lots of people were basically picked up off the streets and moved uh, through the jail system and just basically kept out of sight, out of mind, so that nobody in the world would necessarily see how fundamental the issues are that we're dealing with here in the city. And that was just as true in 1984 as it's going to be in 19 or in, in 2028 when we have them here again.
0: Yeah. And they they use the kind of uh, the the uh, Williams sisters as an example of like why bringing the Olympics here good, because we created these Olympians, these incredibly amazing athletes. But it's also part of this lotteryism that we see here where like you have to be lucky enough to a live around the new facilities we're going to build and b have the natural athletic talent to actually become pro. Because for every Venus or Serena Williams out there, there's probably thousands of kids in that same neighborhood that were not able to access that and rise to that sort of level of fame and stardom and wealth uh, just based on their athletic abilities. And like we shouldn't be leaving those folks behind either. Absolutely.
1: So another very troubling from my perspective uh, fact about this this report from the AP is that they are perpetuating this this statistic which keeps getting cited. Uh, in 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 places where I'm seeing it all the time, uh, this is this incorrect incorrect statistic regarding the prevalence of mental illness within the unhoused communities here in Los Angeles. They in in this article they state that quote thousands of transients, most addicted to drugs or mentally ill, uh, regularly camp on sidewalks in an area of town known as Skid Row. End quote. So it's the what I take issue with here is when they say most of these people are addicted to drugs or are mentally ill. Um, according to an article in the LA Times that was published in August of 2017, quote, local authorities estimate that 30%, 30% of the county's homeless popu- po- homeless people have serious mental illness, end quote. Later in that same article, they say that, a uh, quote, about half of the homeless people with severe mental illness, which is referencing that 30%, also have problems with alcohol or drugs. And that's coming from Dennis Culhane, who is a... Professor and homeless researcher at the University of Pennsylvania Uh, Todd Lipka who is the executive director of step up, which is a supportive housing organization in Santa Monica Said that he would put the percentage of his agency's clients even higher than that roughly 50% putting it at about 60 to 70% But he and the other experts said that drug use does not cause severe mental illness rather homeless people with untreated mental illnesses self-medicate to relieve symptoms so this is I mean it was when when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was in town. I saw her speak twice and at both of those uh, Speaking engagements. She cited a statistic that said that 80% of the people that are on the streets in Skid Row are suffering from severe mental illness The, the statistics and the research just do not bear this out and it, it promotes this idea that we can solve all of our problems by basically taking these people who are suffering from mental illness and putting them in an institution and medicating them, and then that's suddenly going to make the entire problem go away, which is just fundamentally not true.
0: And it's even more dangerous than that, I think, on a level where we're displacing this notion that People who are on the street either are suffering from addiction or mental illness and sort of deserve to be there, and mask the fact that, like, more than half of the people who are living on the streets of LA right now have jobs, are working. They're people who are priced out of their homes, not because they're like mentally or morally deficient or not passing some like weird Darwinian test that we have, but because the market is stacked against them. So, it, like, when you erase that from our discussion of the unhoused, you're missing the people who need to be solved for the most, building all the mental. Institutions or like sober living facilities in the world does nothing to help the person who isn't suffering from those issues.
1: Absolutely, I mean, it's it really just comes down to the fact that we have rents that are just too damn high in the yeah. city. It's funny how that's like catching on as a slogan all over we, the place.
0: We should do something about
1: that. <laughs> somebody should.
0: Somebody should have a proposition <laughs> about that.
1: I think we're going to go over that one in a little bit here. Um, <laughs> one, one last thing to note in this, uh, from this article in the AP, from this interview that they did with Garcetti, is that uh, he also chose to push the blame. Uh, for some of the city's ongoing homelessness crisis onto state and federal governments because uh, he says that they are, quote, not doing more to help cities like Los Angeles develop innovative ways to help homeless people get the help that they need. Um, Which, honestly, I thought that that was his job as the mayor.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, one would think so. No, but it, it one thing I noticed throughout this whole interview uh, that really amazed me, and we didn't cover it too much here because it's kind of dumb, but Garcetti spent most of his time seemingly talking about Donald Trump and not the city of L.A., and uh, that bothers me because he's the mayor of L.A. He's not running for president yet, and yet he's already checked out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry, I just wanted to, like, slash rant on that one. It's
1: it's funny because I keep seeing these stickers that say, where is Eric Garcetti? Ha. I, I even saw one of them actually in uh, in room three hundred four at City Hall in the back of one of those uh, one of those benches. It was kind of funny seeing it there.
0: So yeah, no, that's that's pretty good. I, props to whoever slapped <laughs> that one up. Uh, but so I read an article earlier this week by uh, no, I think maybe it was last week, uh, but by Jack Humphreyville, who is a notorious conservative uh, curmudgeon uh, who's never seen a good idea that he doesn't hate, and he was ragging on Charter Amendment B. Charter Amendment B, if you don't know, is the amendment that will allow the the city of LA to begin establishing its own public bank. So let's talk a bit about that.
1: Yeah. So When he wrote that article, it wasn't actually being called Charter Amendment B yet, but it is now official that public banking is going to be on your ballot if you are a resident of the city of Los Angeles. This November, you're going to get to vote on Charter Amendment B, and you should vote yes. So back in June, the Los Angeles City Council voted unanimously to include this charter amendment on the ballot so that voters would be able to consider it this fall, and the county just gave it this letter. This ballot measure does not actually mandate that the city establishes a public bank, despite what Jack Humphreyville and others like him would tell you. The measure is really just, it's the first, uh, it's the next step, rather, in a process of trying to create a municipal bank at the city level there's going to be uh, an effort that include this this effort is going to keep going for quite some time and one of the steps that's going to come immediately after this is we're going to be pushing for legislation at the state level through the California Public Banking Alliance to actually allow for the chartering of banks that would be uh, done through the state rather than having to rely on federal um, banking charters and regulations so uh, this there's a lot of scare tactics that he uses in his in that article, um, and also in his official opposition to the Charter amendment that's going to be coming out in the voter guide, and none of it holds water. It's it's all just uh, this leaky argument talking about how you can't trust the city to do anything because they're all super corrupt, and this is coming. This is
0: the man who like makes sure that DPW <laughs> has the fattest pensions known to DWP. man. D- DwP sorry I, DPw <laughs> is the folks who build burning man uh, don't want to get those mixed up.
1: yeah, so I mean, he's basically a uh, it, it, he just it's, it's crazy. So don't believe what he says that he talks about this um this development bank of the of Los Angeles and says that it was uh, corrupt and mishandled its money. Um, but it was it was basically a, a a loan institution that was set up to fail and it was intended to only. Give loans to extremely high risk uh, applicants. And then it was managed horribly by a bunch of people that uh, are very much the same type that uh, that Jack Comfortville actually seems to like,
0: yeah. it's it's anyone who's been on a board or like overseen DWP is not someone who is unfamiliar with the corruption in the system. <laughs> uh, we've read the reports on like what their union does with the money we give them, uh, and it's led to several indictments and investigations across the state. But this uh, push for a public bank here in LA is part of a larger state and national push, and that's actually pretty exciting. This we LA may actually have the chance to be the first major metropolitan area that takes a foray into this area, and that's going to help pull along a lot of the national and the state momentum. One of the things that's talked about a lot is the fact that marijuana businesses have a hard time accessing banking or storing their cash. So there's a lot of different ways that like a public bank here in L.A. in the next decade or so could unlock and shore up a lot of revenue and give people a lot of options. So this is definitely something to keep up with. And if you do it, it and if you are voting in November, please vote yes on Charter Amendment B.
1: Yeah, there are actually 15 different pieces of legislation or more at this point that are going through across the country, all in support of uh, public banking initiatives. So it really is The like LA is leading the charge on this one. But it's there. There, this is a movement that's growing all over the place. And, and the only extant public bank that we have out here in this country is the Bank of North Dakota. And people like to point at them and say that, you know, the city of Los Angeles is not the same as North Dakota, which was actually, I believe, the title of Jack Humperville's article.
0: Well, technically, the import export bank is also a public bank, but it has very severely limited uh, operations. It also operates at a federal level. It's not run by by states or anything, but it basically just exists to give like loans to people who want to import and export stuff like Vandelay Industries.
1: (laughs) Anyway, vote yes on Measure B.
0: And hey, if you want to learn more about public banking or the philosophy behind it, please Listen to our podcast episode, Imagine a Not Evil Bank. But, yeah, so now from from banks to landlords. So, as you've probably been paying attention, the largest rent strike in the country is is going on in Westlake with a a group of residents who live on Burlington. There's 87 units that are on rent strike right now going up against their landlord, Lisa Ehrlich. Now, Lisa Ehrlich is an incredibly wealthy attorney and landlord who lives in Pacific Palisades. Uh, The L.A. Tenants Union has been lobbying Mitch Farrell, uh, as well as some other uh, city council members. They were lobbying Marquise Marquise Harris-Dawson over the Expo rent strikers. Marquise Harris-Dawson declined to support the rent strikers, as did Mitch O'Farrell. Mitch O'Farrell sent a letter basically claiming that his his office cannot do anything because it is not an RSO building and that the rent strikers need to just work it out with Lisa Ehrlich, a woman who has kept this building in such poor maintenance that when she was taken to court, the jury literally awarded some of her tenants $1 a month in rent because it was that inhabitable to live in there. These are people with children. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, it's terrible. Uh, You can go online. You can check out a a great video that The Nation just did uh, featuring power member and L.A. Tenants Union organizer Trinidad Ruiz, who's been on our show a couple of times, talking about this particular fight and what this means for the larger, larger city of Los Angeles. But to get back to Mitch's letter, remember when he says we can't protect you because you're not RSO, that's one of the best arguments you will hear for yes on Prop 10. Absolutely. If we can bring every apartment building in L.A. under rent control, then that means we can seek redress from our city council members instead of having a shrinking minority Uh, be protected by city council while the rest of the city is left to fight against incredibly greedy developers. Greedy developers who, by the way, are sitting on 200,000 plus empty housing units in the county of Los Angeles while we have 60,000 people unhoused. So not only could we solve the housing crisis overnight almost, we could give those people multiple homes. They could literally have vacation homes. (laughs) Yeah. And there would still be some to go around. So these arguments about scarcity or about cost or about landlords not making money, those are going to be coming get you hard and fast. But never forget, people are actually suffering today, right now, from shady landlords who want to kick out families so they can sell their land and make more millions. Absolutely. And it, I mean, this comes on the
1: heels of the fact that all of those tenants at the exposition uh, complex were just all evicted yeah. or in the process of being evicted right now. Um, it, it's, it's very heartwarming to see that at least some of the tenants that are being pushed through this horrible horrible process are actually getting some semblance of justice getting those one dollar rents is pretty fantastic but i've seen the videos and those those apartments are in horrible conditions and there are kids having to deal with living in these places that are just completely unfit for human habitation.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of respiratory issues. There's a lot of uh, issues with elderly folks in the building. And to give you a a sense of how valuable this is to Lisa Ehrlich, who's a woman already worth tens of millions of dollars uh, just in liquid holdings, not to mention all of her, her actual land holdings, uh, she has 11 attorneys working against the uh, against the tenants. Uh, LA Tenants Union estimates that she is spending a quarter million dollars a month to fight this. She could literally just go back, negotiate a reasonable rent increase, let these people stay in their family, take care of the maintenance that she's legally obligated to do, and save herself a ton of money. But no, she'd rather go to court where she has lost seven of 10 cases and spend a quarter million dollars per month to try and kick families out on their asses. Families that are working families, families that are the lifeblood of this city. So this gives you a sense that, like, Mitch is willing to throw down on somebody who lives in Pacific Palisades, but will turn his back on his own constituents. And this isn't new for him. Uh, This is something he's been doing for a while. Uh, It's definitely not a good look for him. And uh, tonight, actually, as we're recording this, LA Tenants Union, she does, and a bunch of other activist groups surprised Mitch at his house and are doing their best to yell at him and let him know that we're not okay with the decisions you're making. So we'll have to see how movable Mitch is on this. Absolutely. Hopefully we can make some progress there. Yeah, now uh, to, to move on to more things to make me apoplectic, uh, <laughs> Disney, who currently owns your entire childhood and all of media forever, <laughs> uh, is apparently trying to renegotiate the relationship with Anaheim. Yeah, so
1: the LA Times released a report back in September of 2017 with a title that says, Is Disney paying its share in Anaheim? Uh, which, as you probably have heard, if a headline is asking a question, the answer is almost always no. So, uh, in that report from the L.A. Times, they detailed some of the subsidies, incentives, rebates, and protections from future taxes that have been received by Disney from Anaheim that the public policy experts that were uh, interviewed estimated would be worth more than $1 billion. Of course, Disney uh, disputes that figure. One simple example that's worth looking at in just a little bit of detail here is that they have a parking garage that you pull up to if you're going to go visit Disneyland. Um, the city of Anaheim spent $108.2 million to build that parking garage. They lease it to Disney for $1 per year. And if Disney fills up only half of the parking spaces in that structure every single day, which they fill up more than much more than half of it most days, that represents something like thirty-five million dollars in revenue for Disney. That is on a uh, on a parking garage that's owned by the city. So that's thirty-five million dollars a year in basically a giant tax rev- tax subsidy from the from the city, uh, in addition to all of the massive uh, discounts that they get courtesy of Prop Thirteen. Um, But in reporting from the LA Times on August 22nd, there was suggested that the move uh, that Disney is proposing to end all subsidies that are similar to this is actually part of an attempt by the megacorporation to improve their relations with the city ahead of the November 6th election, Because there is a ballot measure that would require Disney to pay all of its staff a living wage if it passes Specifically the language in the ballot measure requires this pay raise from quote all large hospitality businesses that receive a tax subsidy from Anaheim Which if Disney is able to end all of these subsidies, then they are supposedly going to be hoping that it could be uh, It would disqualify them for from being affected by this ballot measure right now Disney is still insisting that this is really Uh, this, uh, This request to end these subsidies is actually part of their effort to, quote unquote, reset the relationship with the city and build goodwill between them.
0: Which is so weird because they literally strong-armed the city into not raising their taxes by promising to invest a billion dollars, and then saying that building Star Wars Land, which, like, I'm in favor of Star Wars Land, let's let's not you know get crazy here, but that that building Star Wars Land counted as that billion-dollar investment when it was sold to the people of Anaheim as, oh, we're going to repave your roads, we're going to improve infrastructure. Disney didn't say, give us a tax break and then we'll put a billion dollars into our own park to make money. They made it seem like that billion dollars would go into the community.
1: Yeah. one of the other tax subsidies that they were arguing about was uh, they were trying to be exempted from a uh, basically a hospital hotel tax, um, which the city was going to grant them. But then it turned out that Disney, after striking that deal with the city of Anaheim, moved the location of that hotel by something like a thousand feet, which... Then the city of Anaheim says disqualified the hotel from that agreement, and then now Disney is throwing a a fit about it, and they're just all everybody's trying to blame this all on something that it's not, when it seems pretty transparently to be an effort to try to get around the requirement that they actually pay their employees a living wage.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I'm I, I guess I feel like Bob Iger has enough money. Like, yeah, I he think doesn't so. need more money. So. so, like, this whole thing just rubs me the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> speaking of things that rub me the wrong way, uh, our millennial congressman, well, not ours, but San Diego's 50th district has a millennial congressman who vapes who games and apparently embezzles a lot of money from his campaign. So let's talk Duncan Hunter, because this story is a doozy.
1: $250,000. Yeah. Yeah, so Duncan Hunter and his wife Margaret were indicted by a federal grand jury for converting $250,000 in campaign funds to pay for personal expenses. Uh, I mean, this story is just absolutely ridiculous. I'm just going to read you part of the Justice Department statement uh, detailing this. This is just the opening one of the opening paragraphs quote a 48 page indictment details scores of instances beginning in 2009 and continuing through 2016 in which the hunters illegally used campaign money to pay for personal expenses that they could not otherwise afford the purchases include family vacations to italy hawaii phoenix arizona and boise idaho tuition school tuition dental work theater tickets domestic and international travel for almost a dozen relatives the hunters also spent tens of thousands of dollars on smaller purchases including fast food, movie tickets, golf outings, video games, coffee, groceries,
0: home utilities, and expensive meals. $1100 to Steam. Like that's the one that really gets me is $1100 on Steam. What do you Steam.
1: spend $1100 on Steam buying? That's so many AAA titles or so many independent games.
0: Well, and what's funny about the Hunters is, like, they almost sound like your regular just broke millennial couple. Like, they have, you know, they don't have good liquid assets. They're uh, leveraged to the hilt with credit cards. Uh, And then you read details, like, during this time frame, they overdrew their checking account something like 1,100 times. Oh, my God. Resulting in 37,000 thousand dollars worth of overdraft fees which like that's somebody's salary in a year and that's what those folks are spending like just on overdraft fees in this time
1: that's absolutely insane
0: my other favorite story is when they went to italy uh, and they tried to expense it to the campaign and uh duncan was told like no you can't do that he tried to hastily set up a tour of a military base a navy base uh in italy to justify the trip as a congressman the navy got back to him and said Uh, we can only do tours on these certain days so you'll have to make it be one of those days Uh, and then Dunker Hunter basically, or Duncan Hunter basically told the Navy to screw off um, and thought that he could get around those rules anyways like the whole indictment just reads like incredibly arrogant people who don't think they'll ever be caught which makes sense because remember Duncan D. Hunter who we're talking about took over the seat from Duncan L. Hunter who's his father (laughs) and was the ranking member on the House Armed Services Committee when he left in 2009 to uh, run against John McCain for the uh, the the right to lose to Barack Obama so (laughs) we've got like this is a really really interesting one it also gets more fun if you remember Chris Collins on August 8th was indicted for insider trading Chris Collins was the first member of Congress to come out and endorse Trump Uh, Duncan Hunter was the second Yeah, so the fact that he got this indictment the same day that Paul Manafort got convicted of eight out of 18 charges for bank and tax fraud, and Michael Cohen allocuted to some really, really amazingly bad charges for Trump, just kind of like... It, it was a very amazing day for the GOP. Like, a lot of their corruption got called out, and it appears like Duncan Hunter was not completely blindsided by this, but he's going to have a really hard time getting out of this, and Paul Ryan has already said they're going to strip him of his leadership positions, of his committee uh, positions. Basically, uh, he's going to be become persona non grata until he gets out from under this, but there's a really good chance that he's going to win the election in November. So if you know people who live in the 50th district of San Diego, which is kind of east which is kind of east of San Diego proper, uh, tell them not to vote for Duncan Hunter because he's going to steal all of their money. Uh, And last thing before I, I, I move away from this, Most of his donors are defense contractors. So now I'm confused because I always (laughs) advocate stealing from defense contractors, (laughs) but maybe not for Republicans. So this is a complex issue, obviously. I'll have to see how I feel about this. Um, I'll go and look at what Steam games he was playing because maybe that will win me some sympathy, Uh, but we'll see.
1: My personal favorite thing from the the statement from the Justice Department was that they apparently... We're paying for dental work by falsely characterizing it as a quote unquote charitable contribution to smiles for life. This is just like the the quintessential way of they're spending all of this money. They just come up with completely outlandish excuses of, yes, I'm paying my dentist to work on my teeth. As a charitable donation.
0: Well, it's like when I go to Trader Joe's and make a charitable contribution (laughs) to pay for my groceries, right? Like I'll just write that off from now on. See, innovative ways of thinking about finance. This is what we. This is what the GOP is good for.
1: Yeah, man, they're they're leading the way on that one.
0: Yeah. So we'll have to see how that one goes. I mean, campaign finance reform or sorry, campaign finance violations uh, generally are kind of a white collar ish crime. Rarely result in jail time. Generally, it's just sort of fines and stuff. But we'll have to see how the Department of Justice is feeling. Uh, To his credit, Duncan Hunter is not giving up the belief that he is beset by agents of the deep state and that this is all a result of a very Obama friendly Department of Justice. Uh, apparently he has not met the new uh, attorney general if somebody would like to introduce <laughs> him to jeffrey Beauregard sessions uh, that might help disabuse him of some of these notions that uh, duncan hunter is uniquely oppressed wow yeah it's it's it, it gets weird especially when <laughs> like you're taking money from like six of his top 10 donors are defense contractors and he's like the deep state's out to get me it's like Who do you think is paying you? Like, if there is a deep state, they apparently really like you because they keep giving you a lot of money.
1: Outstanding.
0: Uh, Yeah, so uh, (laughs) I don't feel better now. Um, Maybe there are some events coming up on the calendar that might help me with that.
1: Well, this weekend, Left Coast is going to be happening in town. So uh, starting at 5 p.m. on Friday, August 24th, with events running through until 6 p.m. on Sunday evening on August 26th, Left Coast is a a forum for community organizers and activists on the left To meet and talk about all the different things that they're doing Uh, These events are going to be held at the LA Trade Technical College Which is located at 400 West Washington Boulevard Just south of downtown Los Angeles So right in my neck of the woods And then also uh, there is going to be an event Uh, Related to Proposition 10, it's going to be the Yes on 10 Day of Action for a statewide day of action that's happening on August 27th. Uh, We won't go into detail about what's going to be happening, but we'll go on to lots of detail following up after the fact.
0: Yeah, it should be good. If you get the chance, show up there. If not, you're going to be seeing a lot of Yes on 10 campaigning coming in the next couple of months. It's really important that we pass this. It's really important that we show the city council. And the county board of supervisors that there is momentum for rent control so that they immediately move to enact rent control or at least rent stabilization in all of la county in all of la city because uh, otherwise the developer is going to take the tens of millions of dollars uh, that they haven't invested in the No On Ten ca- no on 10 campaign and put it into stopping rent control or trying to get rent control uh repeal because costa hawkins did freeze it so he couldn't make any changes so we're kind of entering a bit of an unsettled period but yes on 10 very very important
1: Absolutely. So, as always, if you've got events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org, and also, or just go to ggla.info, or visit our Facebook page and send us a message.